I spoke to my wife, and she uh, sent her love and her greeting, and uh, she was uh, disappointed she was not able to come this year. But both of us are very grateful that you've allowed us to, to be here in your church uh, several times now through the years. I believe it was 2013 was the first time I had the privilege of being here, and I think it was Easter Sunday that I was here on, on, on that year. And then 2015 is when I came back, and I've been here every year since then. Thank you for allowing me to come, and thank you for being faithful. Some of you have been here every single service, and uh, most have been here at least most of the services. Some might have missed maybe one or so, but thank you. You know, isn't this book uh, an amazing book? I mean, what other book could you just announce? We're all going to meet down in this building, and we're going to open this book and just kind of pick a place, and we're just going to talk about what a few words or a few sentences out of this book. How many people would come to hear you talk about the same book over and over and over? It's, it, it, it's, it's, it's a miracle. The, the, the Bible is a miracle. It's a miracle book. And, and uh, so tonight, if you would, open your miracle book to the book of Job. The book of Job, chapter 32. The book of Job, chapter 32. Some of you may remember that uh, the last two years that I was here, we started in the book of Job in chapter 32. In a, uh, in, in a particular message, and then we went from there to several places both times, and we're going to do that again tonight. I'm just going to very briefly review some material we covered uh, from the book of Job the last two times I was here, and then we're going to go from Job chapter 32 to somewhere else, and we're going to talk about uh, something uh, tonight. In the, in the book of Job, of course, there is a man by the name of Job, and he was one of the wealthiest and one of the wisest men in the world. And one day, God and Satan were having a conversation, and they were talking about Job. And Satan said to God, well, sure, anybody would love you if you treated them as good as you treat Job. And so God said to Satan, I'll let you do anything you want to to Job except kill him, and we'll see if he still loves me. And in one day's time, Job lost all of his wealth. In one day's time, he lost his health. In one day's time, all ten of his children were all killed at the same time. And this is not what we're preaching about tonight, but Job passed the test. He still loved God in spite of, of all of that. But three of Job's friends came to visit him, and they came to comfort him and help him, encourage him to get through this hard time in his life it turns out they were not as much comfort as we would have hoped they would have been but we won't go into that part of the story either but this long conversation takes place where Job's three friends and Job talk to each other back and forth uh, from Job chapter 2 all the way through Job chapter 31 and then in Job chapter 32 a fifth person shows up when I say he shows up that, that's not exactly accurate. He's been there the whole time, but he's not mentioned until Job chapter 32. And in Job chapter 32, he's mentioned for the first time, and he speaks for the first time. His name is Elihu, and we're going to find two basic things about Elihu tonight. I'm uh, going to remind you that we, that we discussed uh, the other two times I was here. But, but those two facts you need to know in order for you to understand what I'm going to teach tonight. So let's begin with Job chapter 32 and verse 1. 
So these three men, Job's friends, ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu. Notice that phrase, kindled the wrath. That means he got angry. means he lost his temper. Uh, we would say uh, he became very, he was furious or he became very angry. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu. So what I want you to notice is the very first thing we're told about Elihu is that he has lost his temper. That's the first fact that, that we discover about this man. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzzite, of the kindred of Ram. Against Job was his wrath kindled because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends was his wrath kindled because they had found uh, no answer and yet had condemned Job. Verse 4. Now Elihu had waited till Job had spoken because they were elder than he. So if you look at me for a second, the first thing we find out about Elihu is that he's angry. He's lost his temper. His wrath is kindled. The second thing we find out about him is that he's the youngest man in the group. You've got Job and his three friends. The four of them are all older than Elihu. And those two points will, will uh, uh, have some significance uh, a little bit later. So verse 4, Now Elihu had waited till Job had spoken because they were elder than he. Verse 5, When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, then his wrath was kindled. That's the fourth time we've been told his wrath was kindled. I get the impression that God is making a point here this kid has lost his temper. He's out of control. All right? Verse 6. And Elihu, the son of Barakal the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young, and ye are very old. Wherefore, I was afraid, and durst not, or dared not, show you mine opinion. I said, days should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. So this young man is saying to these older men, I haven't said anything up to this point because I understood that those of you who have lived more days than me and those of you who, who uh, combined, the four of you, have lived a multitude of years, you should be the ones teaching the wisdom. And up until this point, what Elihu is saying all makes sense. <laughs> all right, now look at verse uh, 8. But... And that word gets us in a lot of trouble. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Great men are not always wise, neither do the aged understand judgment. And we pointed out when we were here before the last two times that you have to be careful about taking one verse and looking at it by itself and trying to understand what it means because... Uh, uh, th that verse 9 seems to contradict the rest of the Bible. All through the Bible, it talks about one generation teaching the next generation. All through the Bible, it talks about uh, uh, fathers teaching their sons and sons listening to their fathers and the aged women teaching the younger women to be keepers at home and so forth and so on. And then all of a sudden, you have this verse that says, well, great men are not always wise and, and, and they don't understand judgment. But... The Bible is not contradicting itself. The Bible is recording the fact that this young man who had lost his temper 
blurted out this statement. There's a lot of statements in the Bible that the statement itself is not true, but it's true that somebody made the statement, and so it's recorded in the Bible. And that's the case here in, in this particular case. All right, look at verse 10. Therefore I said, hearken to me, I also will show mine opinion. That's the second time now that Elihu has warned us he's about to give us his opinion. Now look at verse 17. Elihu is still speaking here. In verse 17 it says, I said, or Elihu said, I will answer also my part. I also will show mine opinion. That's the third time now he's warned us he's about to give his opinion. I did a very thorough search of the Bible and the only place in the Bible where anybody ever admits he was giving his own opinion is Elihu. I think it's very interesting that the only person in the Bible who admits he was giving his own opinion was the youngest guy in the group who had lost his temper. I just think that's very interesting. He's the only guy in the Bible that admits he's giving his own opinion. So he says here in verse 17, I, I said, I will answer also my part. I also will show mine opinion. Have you ever been in a situation where, oh, well, let's, let's read on, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Verse 18, for I am full of matter, the spirit within me constraineth me. Behold, my belly is as wine which hath no vent, it is ready to burst like new bottles. In their day, their bottles were made out of leather. And they would put new wine in a bottle, or we'd call it grape juice, and they would put it in a bottle of, of leather, and if they sealed the top as that grape juice began to ferment and create the gas that, that fermentation cr creates, that bottle would swell, that leather bottle would swell, and, 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 and it would burst. So they would vent the top of it to prevent that from happening. And he said, I feel like a leather bottle full of wine that was not vented. I feel like I'm about to burst. Haven't you ever been there? Haven't you ever had an opinion about something? And you wanted to tell somebody your opinion? And you felt like if you didn't get to tell them, you were going to explode? <laughs> you know? Okay, in our culture today, we use the phrase, he was just getting it off his chest. Okay? Elihu is saying the exact same thing. He just lived in a different culture than us. And so he's using the phrase, I want to get it out of my belly. All right? That's what he's admitting here, that that's what he's wanting to do. And, and he was wanting somebody to respect his opinion. That's why he was warning them about to give you my opinion. And that's why he criticized their opinions before he gave his opinion, he wanted to bring their opinion down a notch or two. We've all been there. Every one of us have had an opinion about something, and we wanted to tell somebody, but we hoped that whoever we told would at least give some consideration uh, uh, to our opinion, that they would respect it to some extent. So Elihu is admitting that. All right, look at verse... Uh, 20 uh, verse uh, 19 again behold my belly is as wine which hath no vent it is ready to burst like new bottles I will speak that I may be refreshed have you been there have you had something to say and you were dying to say it and you were all pent up on the inside and you finally just blurted it out and said told everybody how you felt <laughs> and when you told them you felt better because you 
got it off your chest. Or as Elijah, Elihu says, he got it out of his belly. But the problem is, when I blurt out my opinion, <laughs> and I feel better now that I've said it, usually those who heard me say it, they don't feel better. And Elihu is admitting, I'm going to give you my opinion because I, not you guys, not, not Job and not his three friends, but I will feel better. So he's admitting. That's why he wants to give his opinion. Right, verse 20. I will speak that I may be refreshed. I will open my lips and answer. I explained to you before, and I won't go into all the details again, that uh, the 22 years I oversaw the daily operation of our college, I conducted the staff meeting every morning. And one time for about six months, I took one morning a week, and I taught the staff and faculty at our college how to get people to respect your opinion. The Bible gives you clear instructions on how you can get people to respect your opinion. And so uh, the first time I brought up this subject and spoke from this, this passage here, uh, we used the book of Proverbs and we laid out many, many scriptures and, and clearly showed you that the Bible taught that if you want people to respect your opinion, don't give it very often. <laughs> The Bible teaches very clearly about us being careful about how many words we speak and so forth and so on. Then the second time I was here, I gave you points. Uh, uh, when I taught, taught the staff and faculty, I gave them 26 points on how you can uh, get people to respect your opinion. And uh, your pastor has been accusing me of many things this week. Uh, and one of them was that I give too many points. <laughs> And, and so don't get scared. I'm not going to give you all 26 of them tonight. But the first time I was here two years ago, the first time I spoke on this subject, I gave you point number one. And then last year I gave you point number two and three and four. Number two was if you want people to respect your opinion. And again, we use Scripture mostly from the book of Proverbs to teach this. Uh, if you want people to respect your opinion, limit most of your opinions to your own areas of responsibilities. Number three, if you want people to respect your opinion, it's usually best to only give your opinion when you've been asked for it. And by the way, there are more times that you are asked for your opinion than just when somebody walks up and says, would you give me your opinion? Okay, for example, you're a teacher in a classroom. The administration of that school has asked for your opinion. <laughs> they, they put you in that classroom to teach those boys and girls. When we walk in here and sit down in this building, we are asking the pastor for his opinion about something in the Bible. Uh, okay, so th there are various times when you're asked for it, but usually we're better off if we limit ourselves to only giving our opinion when we're asked for it. And then number f uh, four, I, I said that um, if you want people to respect your opinion, it's better to express more positive opinions then you do negative opinions. And then last year, uh, we ended by uh, going to point number five, and we just barely introduced it. So we're going to go back there this year, and we just took a few moments right at the end of the session last year, and we talked about point number five, so we're going to go back there this time. So if you'll go to the book of Proverbs and go to uh, chapter 18, please, the book of Proverbs, and go to chapter 18, we're just going to look at this one passage tonight here in, in chapter 18. Last year, we read one verse from the book of Proverbs and spoke for a few moments on it and ran out of time. And so we're going to go back to that, and, and we're going to go back to uh, where we were last year. Uh, Proverbs chapter 18, 
and we're going to begin with verse 13. Proverbs 18, 13 says, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is a folly and a shame unto him. What that verse is saying here is that if you give your opinion about a matter before you've heard all the facts about that matter, it's a folly and a shame unto you. But I will admit to you, Ray Young has done that way too many times. There have been many times that somebody made one statement to me about some big issue, and my next comment was, before he finished his comment, was, well, I'll tell you why they did that. Or I'll tell you why that happened. <laughs> I wasn't there when it happened, but I know all about it. <laughs> you, you know, uh, you know we've, we've all done that. We've all been guilty of that. And I told you the story last time. I don't want to go into all the details again. But when George Bush, the second president, became president, he had an issue to deal with, and he didn't know what to do. So he thought, I'll call my dad. He used to be the president. I'll ask him what to do. And George Bush, the second George Bush said that the first George Bush, who had already been president, said to his son, when you give me your uh, morning briefing reports that you get from, uh, from around the world for a month, and when you let every one of your cabinet members come and tell me all they know about this issue and give me their opinion, he said, then I'll give you my opinion. He said, but until then, I don't have an opinion. <laughs> You're on your own. And, and that's exactly what this verse is teaching here, that, that if we answer before we really know what's happening, it's a folly and a shame. Okay. Now, that we covered that last year, much more detail, but, but just briefly. Now we're going to go to some new material tonight. If you look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, The spirit of a man will sustain his infirmities. Okay, would you look at me for a moment? Let me kind of uh, explain that phrase to you. The spirit of a man will sustain his infirmities. Have you ever heard uh, a, a doctor or someone make the statement, okay, when somebody gets injured very severely and it's obvious they're going to die and the doctor basically says there's nothing we can do, he, he's going to die, but he doesn't. And he pulls through and he lives. Have you ever heard a doctor say, medically speaking, I have no explanation why he lived. But he just had the will to live. You ever heard that phrase? That's what that verse is saying is the spirit. Okay, sometimes when my physical body has been so injured or has become so ill that my physical body does not uh, have the wherewithal to sustain itself, my spirit will take over and somehow keep life in this physical body when the physical body didn't have the wherewithal to do it. And, and, and the doctors sometimes will say he, he just had the will to live. That's, that's what pulled him through. We had a man at our college that was uh, the, the president of our college for 26 years before I became the president. You, you knew him, uh, Dr. Evans. He was still there as the president emeritus when you were there and I was president. Dr. Evans had a wife by the name of Marlene, Marlene Evans. She was pretty well known among some churches. She traveled and spoke a lot to ladies' groups. But Marlene Evans got cancer. And I'll be honest with you, I don't remember exactly what 
can't kind it was, but it was something pretty severe. And she was told, and again, I'm sorry, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I, but I think I'm pretty close. She was told that I think it was about 15 or 20% of the people. Now, this was back 30 years ago. You understand, they didn't have as much technology and medicine and so forth as now. But in this particular kind of cancer, they said only, I think it was 15 or 20% of people survived this cancer. And she did. She survived. She was in the 15 or 20%. But they told her if this cancer ever returns, and I'm pretty accurate on this number, they told her only 3% of the people who get this cancer the second time survive even six months. And nobody in medical history up to that point had survived that particular cancer second time around more than a year she got it the second time she was at Mayo Clinic you know the famous place up in Rochester uh, Minnesota she was at Mayo Clinic and they told her you have this cancer and uh, and it's come back with a vengeance and and so she decided I'm not gonna fight it <laughs> you know what's the odds 3% chance to live six months what, what you know she said, I don't want to go through all that chemotherapy again. I don't want to go through all that. And, 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 and so my pa our pastor, Brother Hiles, found out that she had the cancer. She was in Mayo Clinic, and she had made that decision. So he called her on the phone, and he said, Marlene, I understand you've decided you're not going to go through chemo and even try to fight this. She said, no, I'm not, Pastor. She said, it's not worth it. The, the chemo just beats me down. She said, it makes me crazy. And Brother Hiles said, Marlene, I've known you for years, and that chemo has nothing to do with how crazy you are. <laughs> and he got her laughing, and he kept her laughing for a while, and she changed her mind and said, okay, we'll try. Fifteen years later, Mayo Clinic contacted her and said, would you come back to Mayo Clinic and led a panel of, I think it was 40, now don't hold me to that number, it might have been 10, but I think it was 40 doctors wanted to interview her to find out what she had done to survive this particular cancer a second time for 15 years. And her answer was, I go to church every Sunday, and my pastor tells me in one form or another, you can live one more week. And she said, I go home and I live one week at a time. I think it's very interesting that almost to the day, six months after Brother Hiles went to heaven, Marlene Evans went to heaven. The spirit of a man can sustain his infirmities. That's a, that's a, that's a, uh, uh, that's a powerful statement. Okay, let's look at the other half of the verse. Look at verse 14 the spirit of a man will sustain his infirmities but the corresponding statement is a wounded spirit who can bear you know what the Bible said there that if you have the right spirit <laughs> that your spirit can give you life over and above beyond what your physical body is capable of producing but on the other hand <laughs> A wounded spirit can kill somebody. 
How many times have we heard the phrase, medical science has no explanation. We don't know why he died. He just didn't have the will to live. He just gave up. He just died. You, you, we've all heard that, that, that description of someone before. A wounded spirit who can bear. That verse is teaching me that when I give my opinion too soon, I don't know all the facts, and I wound somebody, it's pretty powerful. I might be, uh, okay, there's a chance I could be killing somebody, killing their spirit, killing their emotions, and if it got severe enough, kill them. The power, okay, look at verse 21. We're going to come back here in a minute, verse 14, but look at verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. They that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. What, the, what this chapter is teaching us here is our tongues are very, very powerful. How many times has Ray Young wounded the spirit of, say, some wife because she found out the opinion that I was going around telling everybody about her husband, and she knew the facts why her husband was what he was that I didn't know, and I wounded her spirit because I gave my opinion when I didn't know all the facts. And the Bible says that in the power of the tongue there is life and death. Now, to comprehend this story, I'm going to tell you, you would have had to have grown up in the culture where I grew up. I grew up in Louisiana, in the bayous and edge of the swamps. And uh, uh, they used to, it, it, when I was growing up, our license plates on the back of our car, uh, you know, the, the little state slogan was, Sportsman's Paradise. That, that was the, and, and everything in Louisiana was hunting and fishing. There was nothing else. Uh, I was telling somebody just the other day, when I was in high school, I played football. And, and one year, we got a brand-new coach. It was Coach Burton. He had played for the Los Angeles Rams. He had played defensive cornerback for the Los Angeles Rams, and he, and he uh, hurt, hurt uh, uh, I can't remember if it was his back or his knee or something. I think it was his knee, but I don't remember. But anyway, he retired from the Los Angeles Rams, and he comes down to Louisiana to be our head coach, and he's going to whip us into shape. We're doing two-a-days in the summer. Some of you guys have played football and know what I mean by that. And, and we're getting in shape, and we have the first game of the season, and we get beat. I don't remember, like 20-something to nothing or 30-something to nothing. I, I just remember it was nothing on our side. <laughs> and, and, oh, man, he was upset. He was going to whip us into shape. And he said, this was Friday night, you know, in Texas and Louisiana, football is you know, a big thing on Friday nights. And, and so the stadium was full and like it always was. And he said, okay, Saturday morning we're going to have a special practice. And he, he called a special practice for Saturday morning. And he was going to jump right on it Saturday morning and get us all in shape and turn us into a winning team. Saturday morning, one boy showed up for football practice. What the coach didn't know was Saturday morning was opening day of duck season. <laughs> and in Louisiana, nobody was going to football practice on the opening day of duck season. Now, he ran us to death the next week, but, but the point I'm making is you'd have to understand the culture that I grew up in to understand what I'm going to tell you. 
After I'd gone to college, I went back home to visit for Christmas one time, and I drove up in my younger brother's front yard, and he's standing there in the front yard with my father and my other brother. There was three of us boys. And, and uh, my younger brother's skinning this deer. He's got it hanging up in a tree in the front yard, and he's skinning this deer. And my dad and my other brother stand there talking to him, and I walk up, and I start talking to him. There's a pretty nice deer, and we're all talking about how nice it was and so forth. And a car pulls up. This is way out in the country. A car pulls up, pulls off the side of the road, and man gets out and starts walking up to where we are, and I recognize him. When I was a teenager, I had been a bus captain uh, uh, for our church, and this man getting out of the car was my bus driver. He was an adult man. He was my bus driver, Mr. Well, I'm not going to say the name. <laughs> but, but So I walked over to him and to shake his hand, and I thought, boy, I'm glad to see him, and he just breezed right past me. <laughs> Didn't speak, and boy, I thought, wow, what's going on? And he walked up, and he started asking my brother some questions about where he killed this deer, whose property he was on. Who gave him permission to hunt on that property? And fairly quick, the conversation got pretty heated. <laughs> now, my dad, growing up, the biggest thing he taught us boys was gun safety. Oh, he was big on that. I mean, gun safety was, was the Bible. I mean, it was the law. <laughs> you know, you, know, you, know you, you never point a gun at somebody you're not planning to kill. You never point a gun at, at, at uh, you, 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 you never uh, uh, hand a gun to anybody without checking the safety to make sure it's on before you hand it to him. You never accept a gun from anybody without first checking the safety to make sure it's on. You never take your safety off unless you're ready to kill something right that moment. Uh, and when you do take your safety off, you, you click it off real soft and, and quiet so that it doesn't spook the game, you know, that metallic click, you know, you, you avoid that. You, and in the midst of this heated conversation, all of a sudden I heard this click, this loud click, and I recognized it. It was the safety on my dad's 30 on 6 When that click went off, the conversation began to calm down pretty quick. <laughs> In just a few moments, that man left. My brother finished skinning the deer. He took it in the house. My other brother walked off somewhere, and I turned to my dad. I couldn't wait another second. I said, Dad, why in the world did you take your gun off safety? He said, because Mr. was standing on your brother's right side, and on his right side, Mr. So-and-so, unsnapped the strap on his hunting knife and your brother couldn't see it from his vantage point and then I said well why'd you click it off so loud he said because I wanted him to know it was off now was my father trying to use okay he had the power of life and death in his hands at that moment he might have saved my brother's life was he trying to use the power he had? No, he was trying his best to avoid having to use that power. And the power of life and death is in my tongue and your tongue. And most of the time, we'd be better off not overusing that power. <laughs> most of the time, we'd be better off if we'd wait a little while before we speak. Okay, go back to verse 14. The spirit of a man will sustain his infirmities, but a wounded spirit, who can bear? You know, we might say, well, okay, 
I said something I shouldn't have said. I'll admit it. I, I, I'll admit I didn't know all the facts. And so I'll take it back what I said. Once you pull the trigger, it's too late to take it back. You know, you might say, I'm sorry, but once you've pulled that trigger, you're going to kill somebody if the gun's pointed in the right direction. And once you have said it, okay, you take it back, but you've already wounded them. Look at verse 15, and we'll, let me see what time it is. Okay, we're going to, I'm going to give you one point. Now, number, number five on my list of 26 points was only give your opinion when you are totally informed of all the facts. Now, that leads me to point number six. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, The heart of the prudent gets knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeketh knowledge. Now, he just got through telling us, the writer of the book of Proverbs, just got through telling us that we should not give our opinion until we know all the facts. And he has told us if we do give our opinion when we don't know all the facts, there's a good chance we're going to wound somebody. And now he says, Therefore, Spend all the time you can seeking the facts, seeking the knowledge. That's what verse 15 says. Look, look at verse 15 again. The heart of the prudent getteth knowledge. The ear of the wise seeketh knowledge. Go back to Proverbs, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Job chapter 32 one more time. I want to show you something right quick. Job chapter 32. In Job chapter 32... Uh, Elihu is speaking. In Job chapter 33, it begins, Wherefore, Job, I pray thee, hear my speeches. That's Elihu. He's still speaking. All right, look at chapter 34. Furthermore, Elihu answered and said. So he's still speaking. Look at chapter 35. Elihu spake furthermore and said. So Elihu is still speaking. Look at chapter 36. Elihu also proceeded and said, Elihu is still speaking. Look at chapter 37. At this, uh, at this also my heart trembleth and is moved out of his place. If you read that carefully, you can very clearly see that's Elihu. He's still speaking. He's been speaking all the way since chapter 32. Now we get to chapter 38. And this is, to me, this is one of the funniest things in the Bible. Look at chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job. Would you look at me for a second? Who's been talking for the last 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37? Who's been talking for the last six chapters? Is it Job talking? No, Elihu's talking. But when Elihu finally shuts up, God answers not Elihu, he answers Job. In other words, God, when Elihu finally shuts up and gives God, okay, you ever heard, you know, I couldn't get a, a word in edgewise? God couldn't get a word in edgewise with this young kid just rattling, you know, for six whole chapters. And when he finally shut up, God turns to Job. Okay, let's see what God says to Job. Look, I'm in chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this? that darkeneth counsel, or who is this that makes counsel hard to understand? Who is this that's giving counsel that nobody can clearly see it? Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? You know what God is saying to Job? 
Who is this young kid that just keeps talking and talking and talking and talking and talking and talking and doesn't know what he's talking about? So point number six on my outline is if you want people to respect your opinion, spend more time gathering the facts than you do giving your opinion. Spend more time gathering the knowledge about what's really going on than you do giving your opinion. Or don't give your opinion until you've got all the facts. So points five and six go together. I know we'll never be able to do this. I wish someday I could, I could uh, come and speak to you, you know, for three or four weeks in a row. <laughs> and, uh, I, I'm not asking for that. But, but uh, 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 and, and I could teach you all 26 points like I taught the staff and faculty, you know, one week after another. But I believe even with the little bit we added to it tonight, we could all be reminded that we'd be a lot better off if we didn't give our opinion as often as we do. And it's if we didn't give it as quick as we do. And if we waited till we had all the facts and we were careful to give an opinion that would, that would uh, strengthen somebody's spirit instead of taking a chance on wounding them. Now, I'm going to confess to you that Ray Young is the first one that ought to be at this altar tonight because Ray Young has done that before. Ray Young has wounded people when he said something before he knew what he was talking about. I wonder if there's anybody else in the room tonight who's ever done that. And I wonder if we would do better if we would all ask for God's help to take what we've learned and apply it to our daily life. I'd like to have every head bowed and every eye closed.